Hi, I'm James P. Friel. And I'm Dean Holland. It's time to fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls. That's right. If you're an entrepreneur who's wanting to take your business to the next level and have a bit of fun while getting cutting-edge advice on your business, marketing, and sales, welcome to Just the Tips, arguably the best podcast in the entire world. I guess that's good, right? Yeah, that's good to me. All right. That was easy. That was the easiest thing we did all day. Yeah. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Just the Tips. This is your host, James P. Friel. I am thrilled that you guys are here with us today. You're in for a real treat. We've got an e-com super professional guy that just has helped so many people, is widely respected. And if you're somebody who's selling something online, you want to be selling something online, or you're related to somebody who is selling something <laughs> online, this episode is for you. And you may have just heard the chuckle of who you know as my co-host, Riding into the studio on his white noble steed, ladies and gentlemen, welcome the one, the only, Mr. Dean Holland. <laughs> there we go. How are you doing, James? I couldn't hold back the chuckle in the background there. You know, it's very rare that you say something that's entertaining. So that kind of caught me <laughs> off guard a little piece there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Thanks for that ego dig right at the right, right. before the first end of the show. I appreciate there that. There we go. There we go. But I got to say, I'm like immensely looking forward to this show. We just said before we started recording, our guest today is actually a host of a podcast that I've just recently become an avid fan of. So I'm super excited that he's uh, now on this show. Yeah. Do your best not to fanboy all over him. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to hold it back a little bit there. I know. You're not doing a very good job. Keep a straight face, stiff upper lip like the British do. And <laughs> let's get into this. So guys, we have the host of the unofficial Shopify podcast, None other than Kurt Elster here on the show with us today. Welcome to the show, man. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. And I love the banter. This is off to a good start. I have high hopes for this episode. <laughs> I hope they're not too high because it's probably downhill from here. So <laughs> no, but seriously, Kurt, we're really happy to have you here. And you've established a great reputation in the e-com world, especially you know with your podcasts on all things Shopify related. But you know, today, I think what we wanted to do, because we know a lot of our listeners are e-com people. And I joked at the beginning, like if you're selling something, you know somebody who's selling something. But at some point, everybody has had an idea of a product or something to sell. And some people you know, venture off and try and figure that out and other people don't. And what I'd love for you to kind of share with us is if you're somebody who does have a product, maybe you started selling it, maybe you have an idea to sell, like what is the best way to start thinking about selling your product online? Having interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs on my own show, a common pattern emerged. And it was generally the successful entrepreneurs followed kind of the same story, which was they had a painter problem in their own life and they look for a solution. They couldn't find one. And then they asked themselves this one critical question. This is where it starts. They go, well, why not me? Why can't I do this? Why can't I fix this? Whatever this yeah. problem is. Then they turned around and they started down this journey. And a lot of people have like no experience developing a product. And so they came up with a solution. They developed the product. And it usually starts with a little bit of validation, first from your friends and family, which is okay, you know, because these people right. are biased toward, you know, trying to be awesome toward you. And they're going to say, hey, you know, yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe they're lying. Maybe they're not. Who knows? But then you have to start. <laughs> that's why yes, they're, like, they're probably lying. So if your friends and family are like, no, nah, that's not a great idea. Okay. That's not a good sign. They're the ones most likely to say yes. And then it usually from there turns into like, okay, yeah, I made it for myself and then someone bought it. That's the real indicator. If someone says to you, yeah, I'd buy it, that 
means one one hundredth as much as if they pay you so much as a dollar for it. I mean, if you really want to know, go, well, hey, I'm going to make 10 of these. I'll split the cost with you. Pre-order it for me for 50 bucks. And here's my square reader, right? And if they're willing to put down that money, that's incredibly good early indicator before you blow thousands of dollars on this potential boondoggle of a business. If you get one guy to give you 50 bucks for your idea right now as a pre-order, sort of like with Mm -hmm. Elon Musk and his Cybertruck at 100 bucks a deposit, that's a very good indicator that yeah, you could actually find other people who will buy this thing. I think that's where it starts. I love that. I love that. That's just like a practical litmus test for any product or any idea. You will not necessarily have known this, Kurt, but one of Dean's first businesses was he, as a 12-year-old emerging entrepreneur, he sold parakeets. He thought he was going to sell parakeets. I think if Dean had done this test, he may not have gotten into the parakeet business where they (laughs) all wound up killing each other. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. You came along about 20 years too late here, Kurt, with that one for me. <laughs> My apologies to the parakeets. <laughs> yeah. We, may they rest in peace. Okay. I think that's really, really awesome. And then, so let's say that you have, you know, kind of passed this initial market viability test and some people are paying. Now you have this problem of like, okay, great. How do I sell this on any level of scale? Like, how do I bring this online. And I think most people who are thinking about you know selling things today, at least at some point, if they're really thinking things through, have to have their online strategy as part of that. But that can be very intimidating because there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And I think a lot of people make a ton of mistakes when they start to sell something online. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making in the e-com space? Okay. So the biggest mistake I see is they operate in stealth mode where they borrow this idea from you know big venture capital backed v silicon valley companies and that's absolutely not what you want to do so uh, the mistake that i see people make is they keep the whole thing a secret they're building their shopify store or you know whatever their website is and it's behind a password it's like coming soon 30 days and then they take the past they're like i I don't want anyone to see it what if someone sees the site and then they quote unquote launch the site meaning like you know they unchecked the password protection box and now the site's available and then nothing happens well of course nothing happens (laughs) you didn't tell anyone who's gonna know right (laughs) and maybe maybe you could get like you know you announce it on facebook and you can get a few friends that's the big mistake i see people make when i talk to people who are early in this journey. And they're like, look, I got this idea and I validated it. I think it's going to be the biggest thing ever. And I say, okay, how big is your email list? And they go, what? That's the big mistake. Like step one should be number one, get a place where people could sign up for an email where they can learn more, do something Mm. where you could start building your audience. I think that's the cornerstone Mm. of a successful early launch. And that's kind of the attraction to Kickstarter. Like even though I'm like this big Shopify guy, I'll tell people, hey, you don't necessarily need or want to start on Shopify. It may be easier to use a crowdfunding platform like uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. And again, like that's not free money. That's a full-time job for 30 days when you're running those things. Or a marketplace, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, because you're going to pay a big chunk to them, but they're going to provide the audience to you and help you Mm. get those initial sales. And during that time, that's when like I would consider that a soft launch. And then that's where you're going to do your testing and tuning and start getting some customers on the phone and being like, hey, what'd you get out of this? What was the benefit? Who would you recommend this to? I love who would you recommend this to as a customer question, because that tells you how they see themselves. Like if I said, you know, if you said, Kurt, who's Kurt? Who, how do you see yourself? I'd be like, well, I'm a dad and I'm a business owner. But that, if you said, well, okay, Kurt, who would you recommend this pen to? And I'd be like, oh, tech guys who love industrial design. 
Well, really, I just described myself in the second question. That's more valuable. And so from there, now, once you're getting a feel for the customer and you're getting, you're starting to get cash flow through whether it's like that initial cash infusion of pre-orders through Kickstarter or sales starting to come through on a marketplace like Amazon or Etsy, then, all right, now start building out your own brand, your own owned channel with a Shopify store. Hmm. Do you think people jump the gun on building out their own brand too soon? No, I think the issue at day one is putting all your eggs in one basket where it's like, all right, I'm going to build my brand and only my brand and do it in secret and not tell anybody. The best thing you could do for your business is work in public. Like on social media, even if you've got 10 followers, share everything you're doing, share the trials and tribulations, share what you're up to so that people can connect with you as a business owner, Mm. as a person that you could start building that story, but you could start finding your tribe. And I think that's by far, coming up with a product idea or the market idea, whatever that is, is the easiest part. Getting that product developed, that's hard, but it is still not the hardest part. It's building that initial audience, getting first sale one, then sale 10, then sale 100. All right, if you get to 100 sales, whew, you are through the most difficult part. Now <laughs> things are going to start scaling up, but it's that initial like zero to 100. That's right. a real struggle. Awesome. So just taking a step back, how did you get started in all this? Like, Why did this become the path that you decided to take? Good question. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And it's because my dad got laid off when I was a kid. I was like eight. And he had trouble finding work again. And then he became a self-employed for a while. But he always used to say, he goes, if you're your own boss, you can never get fired. So that's interesting. <laughs> and so it was really like he had this terrible experience and it was hard on him. And I saw it as a kid. And so by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like That was just ingrained in my being. And I went through college, I studied business, I had always sold stuff on eBay, and I had knew a little bit about websites, I was kind of a computer geek. So it was a natural thing for me to become my first consulting gig out of was I became an e-commerce consultant, a channel manager for an auto parts dropshipper, because I was a car guy, and I knew eBay, I could do this. So I managed their eBay channel. And after like, that was my only client. So really, it was like working a single job with a boss. And I knew I was betraying myself in doing this. I was 1099, but I felt like an employee. And so one day I'm tying my shoes and I broke down crying like in my apartment in my 20s because I didn't own my own business. And so I quit my like job. Like on your way to go to work sort of thing? Yeah. I knew I had been lying to myself. It wasn't working. So fortunately, my expenses were really, really low. That was like a huge unfair advantage where you know, it would be very tough now for me to start a business from scratch. Whereas in your 20s, you know, much easier. And so I quit my job with no plan and then I had a friend who'd been laid off and I said, let's build an e-commerce platform. And he was a developer. <laughs> it's like that. And I'm like, that's my technical co-founder. The reason I jumped into it is I didn't know what I didn't know. And yeah. so after a year of trying to get this e-commerce platform going, which turns out it's way harder than I thought, <laughs> right? I ended up from there turning around and there were people knocking on my door, misunderstood what we did and saying, well, can you help us with our website? And I need to keep the lights on. So I said, sure. The first time I got 700 bucks to build a website, I'm like, oh, wow, I can't believe it. Then I got two grand to build a site. I said, this is unreal. Then I got eight grand. I thought, this is criminal. Is this even legal? Right? <laughs> like After a year, maybe six months or a year of this, I went, wait, why am I still messing around with this e-commerce platform? Like The thing that makes no money and is keeping me up at night versus there are people literally just trying to give me thousands of dollars and I'm fighting that. Right. That uh, rapidly doing fulfillment for big agencies in Chicago who needed tech partners. We got to work with Verizon, the NFL, Hilton Hotels through that, but we hated it. We're the low man on the totem pole. And at the same time, I had a friend who owned a bike shop locally and he said, Kurt, you know websites? 
can you help us build a website? I said, what do you want it to do? He said, well, we hate our current one because it's not customizable and it's not easy. So that sucks. Well, I heard about this thing called Shopify. And this was like in 2011, 2012. We should try that. And again, not knowing what we didn't know, our first project was, well, we'll just design and develop a custom theme. Oh my gosh, we did it. We succeeded. They took notice because the company was very small then. There were like maybe 50 people at the time. And they said, hey, you should join our experts program. And then it just snowballed from there. So like a year after that, the same thing happened where, wait, why am I doing anything other than e-commerce? And then I narrowed down further. I said, wait, why am I doing anything other than Shopify? And that's like, you could follow that exact same journey in your business. You want to first find, okay, here's where I could sell. Here's where the success is. And then double down on that. And then as you learn what that overlap is of like your passion, what you're good at and where your audience is and start laser focusing and narrowing down, narrowing down, narrowing down. The mistake I made early on, the mistake everyone makes early on is casting this really wide net. It really makes things much harder. The moment I started saying, I'm the Shopify guy to an email list of maybe 800 people, within 60 days of that, I started getting referrals from people I didn't know to people I didn't know going, well, hey, I heard you need help with Shopify. Kurt's the Shopify guy. When you have a positioning statement, and that's like another key success indicator where people can go immediately, hey, what do you do? And you go, oh, I help Shopify merchants sell more online. Wow. Like it's suddenly it, it's very sticky and easy. But if you have to give them like a two minute explanation, guess what? They're not going to remember it and they're certainly not going to repeat it. Completely. So along those lines, then you said, all right, so getting past those first hundred sales is like, you know, there's a lot of heavy lifting, right? And it's the same, you know, like, you know, launching a rocket into space, getting it off the ground is the hard part. Once it's in orbit, it it just stays there, relatively speaking. Oh my God, I love that analogy. I've never heard that. That's really good. (laughs) Well, I, I, awesome. You could use it. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't say many good things, Kurt. So maybe write that down because he probably won't say anything else good again. Well, and you'll hear that's actually the only thing that Dean said this entire time. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> I had um, that thought. I wasn't going to say anything. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> comments from the no, it's, gallery. It, yeah, you can take your gloves off. This is a bare knuckle match here on this show. <laughs> so, but what I was going to say is so, okay, getting past those first hundred is like, you know, that's real intense. There's so many moving pieces and parts of figuring that out. But after that, let's say we do have a Shopify store or some other online sales funnel or something where we're selling our product. One of the things that I hear a lot is I want to run paid ads to this thing, but I can't make any money, right? It's costing mm-hmm. me you know, too much money to get a sale or something. How do you deal with that? Because I think that's something that really stops people in their tracks, even after they've put in all of that work to get those initial sales. Good question. Okay. So this is a hot topic. I've heard a lot about this in really the last two years. Around probably like 18 to 24 months ago, suddenly big brands started taking Facebook ads seriously. And the issue that occurred is when you have brands like Walmart and Target and Procter & Gamble and BMW dumping money into Facebook ads, and at the same time, you have Facebook saying, hey, we have fewer ad placements because we want to... You know, they had that that stupid PR push where they're like, listen, we want you to connect. Do you ever see these commercials? They're like, we just want to show you more of what you love, your friends and family. That's to limit the (laughs) ad inventory to drive the costs up. I'd give a shit about my friends and family. (laughs) (laughs) Right? <laughs> so, like, they didn't. What? 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 You, what? They didn't. Mark, what? Mark Zuckerberg's not my best friend. <laughs> but at the same time, like, they did that. And then at the same time, you these big brands start jumping in. Well, 
they don't view digital ads the same way we do. If I'm BMW, I know if I can acquire a customer, that's worth tens of thousands of dollars to me over maybe 50 years. I mean, how many cars will one person buy in a lifetime if I can get them brand loyal? And that affinity may start at age 13 where they're going to start showing to me. So if you have a brand like BMW who doesn't give a shit about customer acquisition cost, at least not in the same way. How many impressions did I get? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, at least if like they don't care about customer acquisition cost in the same way us mere mortals do, then right. uh oh, it really is going to drive costs up because it's just like supply and demand. They're buying up the inventory and the inventory is limited. So if it's a bidding system, price goes up on the ads. So number one, Facebook ads have gotten more expensive than ever is problem one. And that's where the metric we use in marketing is ROAS, return on ad spend. And it used to be like, I'd have clients who could get 15, 20X on ROAS. Well, at those numbers, we had people who would just keep cranking up the budget to see how much they could make until they hit like 100 grand a month. But if you're Walmart and BMW, you'll spend 100 grand a month and not even think about it. Yeah. Whereas for us, it's like, that's our biggest client. Anyway, we refer to Facebook as the traffic store. You could buy traffic from it. You hear these like amazing success stories like, oh, we're doing 20 million a year in revenue. Yeah, but what's your profit margin? After you spend all the Facebook ads money gets spent, what is it? So many of these businesses now, digital e-commerce businesses operate in a way that first time sales, if you can get it at like break even where your return on ad spend is 1.5x, you know, so it's like the sale plus where it's like close to break even. That's fine and good now. And now you have to make it up in a few ways. If you can increase the conversion rate on the site, your return on ad spend improves. So more, if I can increase the quality of traffic, if I can learn more about my customers and target them better, it'll get better. So that's like on the front end of that initial purchase. But if I can also turn around and sell more to those customers, so upsells and cross-sells or subscriptions and get that monthly recurring revenue, and then Post-purchase, can I increase my return customer rate? Can I increase my customer lifetime value? So there's a lot of obnoxious buzzwords in there. An illustrated example would be a business that sells coffee beans. I may lose money acquiring that first customer. They buy you know two bags of beans and I ship it and it's $25. And you know maybe with my return on ad spend, I spent 30 bucks getting that customer. I lost money. But if I can get them to a subscription and then I've got that monthly recurring revenue, if I can get them to buy multiple times, maybe buy as gifts, I increase my customer lifetime value and my return customer rate. And if when they make that purchase, you go, hey, the best way to make your coffee is with a pour over coffee maker. Oh, all right. An upsell that drives my average order value up. Or at, sorry, rather a cross sell or like buy the bundle. That'd be an upsell. That is going to then drive that that return on ad spend up. So you brought up subscriptions. Yes. I've seen subscriptions done really effectively. And then there's other subscriptions that just is like, man, it just misses the mark. They're limp. Completely. And I, I would never do this. So how do you package up something so that it is a great subscription and you do improve your odds of back-end profitability? So I think, number one, the people who 100% need to be doing subscriptions are anyone who has a consumable good. So let's say you sell supplements like vitamins, you know, that kind of thing. If it's a thing that I need to keep rebuying, this is now a customer service thing. You are doing people a disservice if you don't offer the subscription or coffee. That's such a good one. Like return customer rate for a coffee shop should be about 50% versus like a typical store. Good store would be like 25% return customer rate. So if you've got a consumable good, absolutely be doing subscriptions and just make sure it makes sense for what the, you know, if I've got like a bottle of pills that last 30 days, all right, well then the subscription should be a bottle every 30 days. Right. So that's like the no brainer. The ones where people really struggle is like box of the month. 
kind of a fad. It was a cool thing, but it's tough to get people now. I think a lot of people got burned on those. It's tough to get people buy into those boxes. And when you don't know what you're getting, it's going to like, you really can't charge that much for them. So the dark truth is a lot of them make their money up by like building up the audience and then charging other people to other brands to include like free samples into their boxes or like swapping with people. It's really tough to do subscriptions within consumable goods. Subscriptions are a no-brainer. Outside of consumable goods, man, that's a struggle. And I, I would be the last guy to say, oh, I can absolutely help you do that because it's hard. Right. Something I just love to run past you on this, because you just mentioned one, which would be a good example in my mind. So with the coffee beans, for example, so maybe I'm wrong with this, but one of the experiences that we've seen with one of our products is it's a makeup brush, basically. And we've got a whole set of them that we want to sell. So we have one as our lead in. But one of the things that we find is practically nobody wants to immediately commit to buying the full set. And one of the sort of customer feedback things we've found is, is people want to see what the brush is like first before they commit to buying another 10 different brushes. When you said coffee there, I'd imagine maybe it could be the same thing there. Like, do you see that people would have difficulty like selling those type of things at the point of sale if somebody hasn't previously tried the product? I guess what I'm getting at is like, do you see people can have success selling those things to a new customer at the point of sale? Or is it going to be more focused on bringing customers back once they've tried the item? Does that make sense? That is a an excellent observation and point. Yeah, I wouldn't even attempt, if I can get away with it, I wouldn't attempt to sell a subscription to a new customer. Right. Ideally, like in your example, what would be great is an offer where you target people and you say, hey, get this makeup brush, free plus shipping. Yeah. So you set the whole thing up where you're going to break even, ideally, or maybe lose a few dollars. And then once they get the item, now they're on a post-purchase follow-up sequence where they're going to get emails that are like, hey, what do you think of the brush? Here's, you know, maybe in between when it's shipping, they get an email like, here's the best way to care for the brush. Here's the best way to use the brush. I love email marketing automation. It is one of the most phenomenal ways to drive revenue in a business. And it's an own channel. Like you're not going to have Facebook screwing your inbox here. So, all right, they get their makeup brush and they get an email series before the brush shows up and best ways to use it. So now they really have a feel for the brand. And then once they get the brush, now they get some more educational content. And then finally, they're going to get a pitch for, hey, if you want the whole set, then you could sell them the subscription for it or you could offer them like, or you could just buy the whole thing right now. You could do that as like an upsell. That might be a clever way to do it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, that's just out of interest. Is there a particular software you recommend in terms of the email marketing side of things? Oh, Clavio. Oh my gosh, Clavio, Clavio, Clavio all day. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard of it. I haven't used it. Clavio's, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Tell so, us what you really think. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on Shopify, like almost every email platform will integrate with it. But Clavio, I believe, was the only one that, like, from day one, was integrated with Shopify and really built for it. So it has, when you're doing these marketing automations within it, where you're sending emails based on what people do, what they buy, what they don't buy, Clavio is by far the easiest and most powerful to do it with because they have the tightest integration. That's my big obsession and love of Clavio. Right, I could tell. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's amazing. So you said don't even attempt to sell a subscription to a new customer, even in the case of consumables? And consumables, I would. Yeah. Okay. It's something I would experiment with, but if you're like, you're just starting out, you're going to struggle trying to sell. You're making your life more difficult by offering a subscription because it's a bigger commitment. Like, yeah, it's like, all right, it's $25 for a month, but the person knows in their head, it's also potentially $25 a month forever. So it's a tougher sell. Hmm. 
And I suppose they don't have uh, maybe the trust they would need maybe at that stage as well. Plus, like you say, like I've experienced, like people don't know if the product is as good as you say it is, right? And but once they hold it, I don't know if you had something else planned here, James. I'd love to hear more about like strategies for bringing new customers back for further purchases. I know we just said about email, but is there any other strategies that you tend to deploy? So with those Facebook ads, when we say like, oh, they're so expensive, they're so expensive, we're really just talking about getting cold traffic to the site. So someone who's never interacted with the brand and has never seen the person, that's the most expensive. You can absolutely remarket to people. So we call them like warm and hot audiences where the person has interacted on Facebook or Instagram. Like even if they view your profile, now suddenly they're a warm audience I can remarket to. That's going to be way less expensive and therefore have a much better potential return on ad spend. One of the unimmutable truths of digital marketing, or all marketing really, is repetition builds trust. So if I interact with a brand you know, seven, eight times, if I have like 10 touch points with a brand, now suddenly they're familiar to me, I trust them, I'm much more likely to buy. I think it's fallacy to think I could just show an ad to someone and large percentage of them are going to immediately buy that same day. It is not the case. You have to look at it as a funnel. And that's probably one of those early mistakes people make. So, all right, let's walk through a funnel. They see an ad and the ad is like something moving. It's a, a photo slideshow or it's a video and it's got a compelling offer and good positioning. And you wrote all this based on you know, interviews with customers. So you know what they get out of it. And it describes a pain or problem. Those are going to be the easiest to sell. And they visit the site and they go on this long form landing page. That's what I want. This much, this long sales page that helps bust their objections and has an FAQ and social proof. And then they leave the site. That's actually what I expect them to do. And as they leave the site, there's a pop-up that opens. So we collect their email. Okay, great. Now I can retarget to them in Facebook because they visited the site and I could start emailing them, ideally based on the product they viewed. You know, in Clavio, I could be like, okay, I could send a browse abandonment email and then I could do a follow-up series based because I know the category or the specific product they viewed. So now I've got these multiple touch points going. So they're going to see ads on Facebook and Instagram and email. And if I want to get fancy and I use Google Shopping ads, I could do dynamic remarketing as well. So now I'm reading CNN and in the middle of an article about like whatever crazy thing Trump tweeted, boom, there's a dynamic ad for the product they viewed on your site. Oh man, now I'm up to four or five touch points. So suddenly, like within six days, you can get someone very easily. Like this is not that tough to do. Anyone could set this up today. You could get someone to have, you know, 10 to 20 touch points with your brand and then come back and buy. Yeah, maybe I didn't get a great return on ad spend or that initial impression doesn't work well on people. But having all those subsequent impressions, ah, now we could get a good return on ad spend out of this thing. And that's where you're really going to see success. And I think that's what separates the really the sophisticated, successful marketer is just how many touch points can I get with someone? Yeah, I love that. In just listing everything you've just said, I think, and tell me if you agree with this or not, like the future of people being able to have sustained growth here is not just thinking about sale one or touch point number one, it's thinking about the whole picture, thinking about the future beyond the, the first time they've seen you, right? Yes, you absolutely want to think in terms of what is my customer lifetime value? Right. Yeah. Definitely. James, I feel after you said I haven't spoke much that I kind of pushed you out there. <laughs> well, I was hoping that that comment might nudge you to actually open your well, mouth I, and I, say I'm something. I'm full of questions so, now, so I could keep going. I'm good. <laughs> 
Yeah, now he's not going to leave you alone, Kurt. He's the one who's been spying well, on you. He's well, you know what? I would love to throw at you, Kurt, here. Like, I know we're uh, pushing the time boundaries a little bit, but no, go as long as you in want. terms of, obviously, how can people get started and then, you know, all the different things that we've covered. Let's just assume then that somebody gets it right. And maybe that's a year, two years, three years into things. But all of a sudden, things start going well. Like one of the problems that we encountered when this happened with us was like, actually, now things were going very well. And I come from a digital background in business. So all my products were digital. So we were fairly new in the last couple of years to like e-commerce physical products. And one of the new things that I encountered was like, oh, there is a whole thing of inventory on hand and like cost of goods and all these things. And so how do you see or what advice do you have when things are going really well and people almost can't hold stock in fast enough? Maybe they don't have the cash flow, maybe like the delivery times to get product produced and shipped. Like how does somebody handle things taking off? So number one, I think that's a great problem to have. It may feel stressful and overwhelming, but when you're in those moments, like number one, remind yourself, okay, great. I'm stressed and overwhelmed because I am so successful. That's going to help center and ground yourself. And then number one, I think that's where as the business starts to grow, you need to start moving low value tasks off your plate. So potentially you were doing all the fulfillment yourself and you were doing all the customer support yourself. Those are the first two things you got to get off your plate as a business owner in this space. So if it's like digital goods, all right, fulfillment, you can automate that entirely. If not, if it's a physical good, then okay, here's where we're going to start thinking about fulfillment by Amazon FBA or uh, getting a 3PL. Get someone else to start doing those lower value tasks for you. And then the other one is customer support. And that's where you want to outsource that. So if you're on Shopify, a tool, a support desk tool like Gorgeous is really phenomenal. They use... Like a lot of questions are just like, hey, where's my order? Okay, let's automate order lookups. So we're not just looking at, can we automate customer service? Well, what's the number one customer service problem? Okay, let's address that. And then figure out, even if this requires writing down everything you do in a day in a notebook and then figuring out where your time is going, start doing that and then tackle those problems in order of this is what's eating up my day or this is what's keeping me up at night. You could do a VA for your customer support. Sometimes just adding an FAQ helps. Email marketing automation, like, all right, we got a lot of questions, like we get a lot of this question from purchasers. Okay, so maybe there should be an email that goes out a day after they order. So it's before they even get the product after they've ordered. That's going to help keep that excitement up and it's going to preempt them. Like, all right, here's the first thing to do with your product or you know, I bought this t-shirt, it doesn't fit. Here's how our returns work. You could preempt a lot of that stuff. Within the Shopify ecosystem, there's a lot of apps, which a phenomenal part of Shopify, but also it increases your cost as you add these a la carte apps. But you could get like a returns manager, an order lookup tool, a support desk. All right, those are three customer support problems that you have now taken off your plate. No, I love that. This is in uh, your wheelhouse as well, right, James? Like figuring those bits out, getting those gone, systemized. Yeah, completely systemizing things. I think, you know, one of the things that has come up for me in this conversation, Kurt, is that yes, we're selling things online. Yes, we're using technology. But at the end of the day, we're trying to do all of these things to actually have better connection and relationship with the people that we're selling to, right? And you're saying, hey, you know, don't ask somebody for a subscription on the first time if it's not something that makes sense. And it's kind of like, well, you wouldn't ordinarily do that in real life anyway, without being weird. So like, why would you use technology to be weird? It, right? Yeah, and 100% it is about relationships. And so, so along those lines, you know, one of the key things about, you know, relationships seems to be brand, right? And that's building that connection. And people understand that 
brand is how you build a connection with an audience. Do you have anything that you think you would be helpful for people to hear about going from just selling things to building an actual brand? Oh, absolutely. So to your point about, hey, the purchase is still about relationships. So don't use technology to be weird at people, right? Because like you wouldn't do that in person. Think about it like this. You're walking at a parking lot. Someone pops their trunk and goes, hey, I got a bunch of t-shirts. You want to buy them? Just give me your credit card number, sucker. And you're like, holy shit, you'd call the cops. Versus if I walk in a store, I know there are business licenses that there's a physical location. It feels much more legit. In the online world, consumers are wise. They know anyone could just open up a store. A Shopify store costs 29 bucks a month. So anybody could do it. So the level of hurdle for trust is much higher that you have to get over. And I think one of the ways to do that, and this is also one of the things that you can use against those big brands like Walmart that are killing your Facebook ads. As part of your brand building, one of the early mistakes I see people make is they're like, we here at Acme Co. have uh, 1,100 employees. You're like, no, you're just one guy in a basement. And you know what? That's okay. And you should own that. Like people buy for people, not brands. The reason that there's these big companies hiring mascots and spokespeople is because they need a face. Well, you already have that for you. Tell your story, live your truth, be yourself. Like don't try and hide behind a keyboard. Just be yourself and people will decide if they like you or trust you. And it will make building that early relationship so much easier. And I see so many entrepreneurs, they have this huge advantage over these big brands and they like absolutely run away from it thinking that that's what they're supposed to do. No, oh my gosh, be yourself, put your personality right. That is it. your over the brands, the big brands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Kurt, you've been super generous with your time. I appreciate it. And this has been an incredible conversation. If people want to check out what you're up to, is the best place for them to go to unofficialshopifypodcast.com? Or is there some other place that they should go to check out more of what you're doing? If you just want to subscribe to the podcast or check it out, unofficialshopifypodcast.com. It's right there. Or Google me, head to kurtelster.com. That's my newsletter. But that comes from my real email address. So if you sign up for it and reply to it with a thoughtful question, I will absolutely respond with a thoughtful answer. There you go. Well, you'll be hearing from me on the daily. That's amazing. (laughs) You just got a new British pen pal. So congratulations. If he could figure out how to type in the accent, that will help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Work on that. Thank you so much for being here, Kurt. We really appreciate your time and definitely your experience. For those of you guys who are in e-com, thinking about getting into e-com, again, a related to somebody who knows something about e-com, point them in direction of Kurt. Really is uh, you know experienced professional, has a great reputation in the industry, and would love to make sure you guys get in contact so he can help you take your business to the next level. So thank you guys for listening today. We appreciate you. Make sure you leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends about us, and we will talk with you guys next time. Later, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Just the Tips, where we believe business should be profitable and fun. For show notes, links, and other information on our guests, visit justatipsshow.com. For more information on how to connect with Dean Holland, visit deanholland.com. And if you'd like to go from being a hustling entrepreneur to an effective CEO, capable of running your company without being stuck in the day-to-day, visit me for free training and resources at jamespfreel.com. Our theme music is Happy Happy Game Show by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.